Stay Player back with you here on 720 WGN. Encompassing a century of classic films, the book Fright Favorites, 31 Movies to Haunt Your Halloween and Beyond by horror and pop culture historian David J. Scull traces the growth of an ever-popular movie genre. From its silent screen roots in German expressionism through the golden age of monster movies like Dracula and Frankenstein to John Carpenter's Halloween phenomenon and its many sequels to the more recent Scream franchise of Scary Slasher and offer laughter-provoking movies. I'm sure you have some Halloween favorites you'd like to watch every year. Are they in this book? Well, we'll find out with author and historian David Scull. David, welcome in. Uh, thank you for having me. You know, I saw your face in your bio, and I realized that I've seen you on a documentary for Abbott and Costello Meet the Monsters almost 20 years ago. Yes, I uh, actually wrote, produced, and directed it as well as uh, acted as host and, and narrator. Uh, it was a lot of fun. I did when uh, Universal was releasing the uh, first DVDs of its classic monster and science fiction films. They asked me to uh, produce all the extras, and I had a blast. I mean, I did it for uh, two years. It was a, a kind of a twenty-four-seven uh, occupation, and um, They've been reissuing them ever since. They're on every uh, uh, new uh, compilation That's disc great. and Blu-ray, and people still think I'm doing them. I get fan <laughs> mail today. People ask you, what are you, what are you doing next? What's your next Universal documentary? Uh, I'm still writing books, but the uh, uh, and, and the, the, those docs are still there for anybody to uh, dig into. Well, and although that movie isn't particularly in this book that we're talking about, it's clearly a favorite of yours and mine. And I've learned so much from that documentary. And it's fun because I've seen it for the better part of 45 years. And to learn something new as you're watching it and, and look out for those things, that's quite fascinating. Well, you know, it was the first uh, horror comedies are very, very uh, common these days. And we've seen all of the the famous monsters appearing in them and, you know, uh, dealing with all kinds of buffoonery. But uh, when Abbott and Costello met the monsters, it was uh, it was fresh and it, it was new. And uh, audiences responded very well to it. And it uh, is beloved in the hearts of monster fans everywhere. Well, many people think, and I, and I love some of the trivia from this, uh, that Bela Lugosi played Dracula for decades. But it was only in the original Dracula and in this movie, that he was officially Dracula. Yeah, he almost didn't do it in uh, the Abbott and Costello film either. There was a, um, a Shakespearean actor named Ian Keith who was up for the part in 1931, and then Universal was about to tap him to do it for Abbott and Costello. And um, not sure exactly uh, who was brought to their senses. Yeah. But uh but they were and so we have uh Bela re uh, reprising his his role. Yeah, only twice in the movies. He played a couple some other vampires, but uh he played Dracula on stage for his entire career. I mean, starting in 1927 um until a few years before he died, he would, would be on the summer stock, stock circuit doing it. Um, it's very, very successful uh, stage play as well as a movie. Well, you got Lon Chaney Jr., you got Glenn Strange, you got Bella Lugosi, and then, of course, you got just a little bit of Vincent Price at the end, just to cap it off. <laughs> yes, um, not everybody catches that, but uh, Vincent Price did play the Invisible Man 
in some universal films in the 40s, and uh, it is his voice as the Invisible Man who appears uh, smoking a cigarette, yeah. floating in air. At the, of course. At the of end course. of the uh, the movie. Why did those, you know, and why did these horror comedy films work? Because it was not a big, big budget film, but it did very, very well. I mean, were people just looking for a different twist on, on well, these I genres? Did- well, you know, uh, horror and comedy go together very, very well, because yeah. I think laughing and screaming are very much the same kind of physiological response. It's a way we release tension. And I always compare it to, you know, going to a horror movie to to riding a roller coaster and uh, just watch. People are screaming on the roller coaster, um, you know, for several minutes and then watch them come off. And they're coming down the ramp and they are laughing and and uh, they've had the time of their lives. And I remember audiences coming out of The Exorcist the same way. You know, they had they had survived something. Right. It was right. Uh, it was invigorating. It was a it was a recharging of the batteries. So true. So uh, yeah. So horror and uh, humor um, have a lot to do with each other. Now the new book is called Fright Favorites: Thirty One Movies to Haunt Your Halloween and Beyond. And you cite the first significant horror film as Nosferatu from 1922 was a German film, but there were obviously other smaller pictures that were horror-based that that preceded it. Yeah, um, I had to really only choose one for that, but the the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari was another one that came out a few years earlier and uh, was equally uh, influential. Um, There were scary characters and situations in motion pictures from the very, very beginning of the the um, uh, the medium the trick films of Georges Méliès in the uh, you know, at the turn of the century in France and uh, Thomas Edison even did a um, a short subject version of of Frankenstein in 1910 but uh, it was only the Germans introduced the first full length narrative horror movies and we still see them uh, echoed in modern films today. Uh, uh, Caligari, Nosferatu, and uh, the Golem. Uh, there, there was there were so many. Um, for this book, I because we had to do you know selective cross section. I chose Nosferatu, which was the first and unauthorized right. adaptation of Dracula to the screen, which got it into a lot of trouble. But uh, fortunately, it survived, even though at one point the the courts ordered it uh, destroyed as a right. plagiar- as a plagiarism and an infringement of the Stoker estate's rights. Which is wild because you note, you know, that honestly, and this one was in- intentionally to be burned or whatever, but you note that 75% of silent films made over 100 years ago are non-existent. It is, it is absolutely true. And, um, you know, all, all of us uh, film historians are always beating the drum for for film preservation, because uh, I think half the movies ever made don't exist anymore, yeah. and uh, it's a you know the the medium is unstable. Even even safety film, uh, our modern improved uh, photographic mediums aren't uh, going to last forever. And uh, uh, a photographic print uh, part part of the reason that I have a lot of my collection, you know, digitized and. Uh, on um, new um, new digital prints is because the inks will last for at least 200 years. But uh, most of the early 20th century is going to be gone before yeah. you know it. Uh, it it's, yeah. it's very, 
and, and, and these are just still images. Um, right. It's very, uh, it, we think of um, film as being a permanent medium, but it's a lot more like theater. You know, mm. uh, it exists only for a certain period of time, and uh, at some point you're only going to have the people people's memories of it. There was a film called London at Midnight with Lon Chaney Sr. that was used as imagery for WGN-TV. We had a show called Creature Features here that's been on. It was it premiered like 50 years ago, and that's another one where the images are so iconic because they survived, but there is not one print of that movie available. As far as we know, and I think the our hopes get dimmer and dimmer, uh, with every year, the last known uh, print and the negative were destroyed in a vault fire at uh, MGM in the in the 1960s, um, and it's become a legendary uh, kind of holy grail of you know film preservationists. Although a few people I've talked to say that um, who actually saw it, uh, they are now passed. Wow. But I, I did talk to to uh, some people. Robert Block, who wrote the novel Psycho, and Forrest Ackerman, the the uh, uh, editor of Famous Monsters of Filmland, and the film historian William K. Everson. I talked to all of them about it, and they all kind of uh, hedged their opinion. They said, "Well, you know, uh, Everson said maybe it maybe it shouldn't be rediscovered hmm. because uh, yeah, Funny. Funny. it was kind of a silly movie." And uh, Cheney plays this uh, this vampire like character with uh, razor sharp teeth and and it, it's it's quite a get up and it's uh, very startling but um Ackerman told me he thought the effect was funny because uh, he was always rolling his eyes and scuttling around like Groucho Marx that's how he described it so uh I'm glad I missed it just uh, <laughs> yeah, it. after midnight might have been the most terrifying film ever made but uh maybe not yeah but uh, uh who knows i mean stranger things have happened um, it was a very, very popular film. There were a lot of prints uh, distributed all over the world. And um, one day we uh, we may see it. One day. Glad I have it, though, based on that description. We're talking to David Skull, movie historian, author of Fright Favorites, 31 movies to haunt your Halloween and beyond. And there's more after this on 720 WGN. Universal was the respected name of horror films for decades. And, of course, the first one was... Dracula in 1931. You mentioned that Lugosi was no stranger to playing the role. He played it on uh, Broadway first, but then came Frankenstein uh, that same year. And the movie was called, it was pre-code. What what does pre-code mean? Well, the production code was um, instituted in the late 1920s to try to uh, give a moral roadmap to what uh, was appropriate on and off screen. But it was never really enforced. So uh, it, it was there and observed in a very half-hearted kind of way. But uh, the audiences liked things like gangster pictures and crime pictures and uh, sex movies and horror movies uh, were, you know, an invention of the early talkie uh, era as far as America was concerned. And these all bumped up against the, the code. And it wasn't until 19... Uh, 1933 or 34, that the uh, it was rigorously enforced, and that was because some films went right over the top, like uh, Todd Browning's Freaks, which uh, was intended by MGM to be the ultimate horror film. But instead of uh, 
terrifying makeups and acting. They got actual um, human oddities from sideshows wow. and freak shows all wow. over the world, and it was considered widely considered, you know, about the most tasteless thing that yeah. uh, had ever reached the screen. Other people feel it was a very compassionate motion picture. I'm somewhere in the middle on it. Um, well, that scene, was, uh, I was to say, that scene of the drowning of that little girl, wasn't that taken out for a while, and then it was rediscovered and then put back in? For Frankenstein, yes, it was. Uh, there's a scene in which Karloff meets a little girl, and they're playing, they're throwing daisies in a, uh, in, in a, in a lake, and um, the monster is having a good time, and he suddenly, in his mind's eye, he sees the little girl as a kind of flower he might also toss into the lake, and he does so, and she drowns. And uh, he and the monster is guilt, guilt-stricken, and it's terrible. But it was a disturbing enough scene that uh, it ended up being removed from uh, the film for a very, very long time. Um, of course, it just left the impression that because you see the girl dead later that uh, the monster had done something uh, uh, right. far worse than playing uh, the flower game with her. Right. And it, um, but uh, from from the very beginning, uh, monster movies um, raised the hackles of the censors, and the state censor boards were very, uh, very, very active, and uh, they could. Chop up a film. They could chop up the film yeah. any way they, yeah. they wanted. And so, like in, in Dracula, for Sunday screenings only, the state of Massachusetts made them cut out a couple of shots. One uh, that showed a skeleton in a coffin, and the other that showed a little bug crawling out of a miniature coffin. What sensibility that offended, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but it is on the record that uh, they didn't think people in Massachusetts should see that on Sunday. Wild. Wild. And I know this golden age, I mean, continued, especially with Universal, with The Mummy next and Wolfman in 41. Um, Let's fast forward a little bit to the 50s in the drive-in era. You called them post-war mutation creepers, uh, specifically kicking off with the movie Them. Yeah, that was the first... um uh, the first big bug movie that American audiences saw. And uh, America was very anxious about, uh, still anxious about the war. It was a very traumatizing uh, experience, even though we won it. Um, uh, the specter of the atom bomb was everywhere. Uh, radiation took on a mythological kind of resonance everywhere in America. And we and one of the ways we processed it was through these images of uh, uh, atomic mutations, uh, everyday creatures grown to monstrous sizes, and, and this was a very, very successful formula uh, in 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 the fifties. And uh, uh, yeah, them was one of them. The, in, yeah, it, them them was the first American one, and. Uh, in the in the film Ed Wood, uh, Martin Landau is Bela Lugosi is right. complaining about uh, how classic horror films aren't uh, uh, appreciated in the 1950s, and he says, "Bugs, big bugs, that's all they want." <laughs> you know, and, that's and, true. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and that summed it up, and that that was really the case. Uh, well, Creature of the uh, Black Lagoon was another favorite from this era. That was 54. Was 3D Universal again, and. Um, 
that you know that one invasion of the body snatchers changed a little bit bringing in that sci-fi to the big screen i can't remember there were so many different episodes of the twilight zone that also brought in the the science fiction and the spaceman with the horror in that a little bit um the house on haunted hill is on your list with vincent price alfred hitchcock the birds i would say in that era that was probably one of the best it 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 certainly was i mean i there are so many films from the 50s that are on people's uh, all-time favorite lists and um, i think it's because a lot of us actually you know, grew up in the 50s Maybe, yeah. and so there is a built-in nostalgia for that period and uh, i remember seeing pictures of those uh, of those atomic monsters in life magazine which my you know parents got at home in the mailbox and i would i i was just i i saved it and i was um, hmm. Uh, looking at it over and over, wondering what these things were. They were creepy, but they were really interesting. <laughs> and uh, I guess for me, they're still interesting. Absolutely. Night of the Living Dead, we'll say it's a precursor to The Walking Dead. Uh, George Romero at the helm. Probably the most famous public domain movie of all time that was never intended to be. Yeah, I don't know how it exactly fell into the public domain. There was a problem with the distributors and registering the copyright. And and uh, in those days, I mean, uh, prior to 1977, copyright law was unforgiving. And if you made uh, uh, basic Clerical mistakes, error. yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was it was too bad. You you lost the rights to the film. But um, it has been looked looked after very. Uh, lovingly, by the, the Museum of Modern Art, which did a full-scale restoration of it. It's in beautiful shape. This is the version that uh, Turner uh, was right. showing this month, and it, uh, it it looks wonderful. But it was in a... George Romero, was he was just trying to make a, a, uh, a good, scary, commercially successful film on a very small budget, and was not intending, at least with the first film, to and I asked him about this personally, and he wasn't intending any big uh, social metaphors. Um, his zombies weren't supposed to be a, a critique of consumer culture. Or they, in his later films, they became exactly that uh, when the series took on a satirical edge as well. But uh, it uh, it was it, it's one of the most influential movies yeah, ever made. I'd say so. How many times it's been imitated and. The, the 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 reach and breadth of it, and everybody knows what a uh, flesh-eating zombie is, and uh, how they uh, look, and how they work, and and uh, you don't have to have seen any particular film right. to uh, they they are with us uh, forever. Uh, they are absolutely are. David Scalzi, the author, uh, his book is Fright Favorites: Thirty One Movies to Haunt Your Halloween and Beyond. And we're going to dip into the 70s to today after the news next on 720 WGN. So a new era of horror films began in the 70s with The Exorcist, which many might not know was based on a true story. Well, William Peter Blatty, when he wrote the book, did know of an actual case of an exorcism in the, the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, it, was, it was a boy rather than a girl who, who was affected. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, exorcism still is a... Uh, a right in the in the Catholic Church that can be uh, called upon. Um, the Church was not so happy with this kind of publicity because they don't really <laughs> invoke exorcism mm-hmm. very often, and uh, they gave the film a condemned rating. It was nominated for an Oscar. On top of it, I mean, it's really one of the first four horror films ever 
uh, to be nominated because th- that genre of movies it, it really doesn't get the attention uh, it deserves. It, at least uh, not uh, until recent years. And it's funny because uh, horror and science fiction used to be in the periphery, the B movies, the uh, the C movies, and you know the worst movies. Um, but with the the growth of uh, Digital technology, especially, and special effects, uh, the biggest blockbusters these days tend to contain some element of uh, fantasy, horror, science fiction uh, uh, creatures. And um, look at uh, at, uh, The Shape of Water a few years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, right. It it, it, uh, not only won an Oscar, I mean, it swept the nominations and deserved many more than it uh, got. And that was really something unprecedented. This is a film that's a um, unapologetic homage to Creature from the Black Lagoon, um, which in the fifties never would have uh, attracted the attention of the Academy. The Halloween movie franchise. I mean, that's a big one that really kicked off another a new era of this in nineteen seventy-eight. Originally intended to call the movie "The Babysitter Murders," as John Carpenter, the director. Uh, but they said, you know, let's do this around a holiday. Let's change the name so that we can maybe do more of these. And uh, they wrote the script in 10 days, and, and then it became, you know, one of the biggest franchises in, uh, in movie history. Yeah, and and also created um, Halloween tie-ins uh, in the movie industry. Um, strangely enough, going back to the early days, uh, you know, in the 30s and 40s, uh, there was never, Halloween was never invoked in marketing campaigns for these uh, all, all the great monster movies. And it was a post-war phenomenon, that, uh, uh, and, and it was really the 70s before the release date of Halloween became important. And soon after, the theme parks, the studio theme parks were having uh, horror nights all through the month of October. This is still with us, although not this year, unfortunately. It's... Uh, right. uh, People are doing things like uh, watching Turner marathons and, and reading right. my book. I, I didn't intend it <laughs> to be so. a virtual roadmap, but that's uh, what it's turned out to be. It's a great guide, uh, I will tell you. It's just the highlights that are in the book, uh, the behind-the-scenes stories, just some general reviews, iconic images, uh, talking about sequels, remakes. I mean, it's you really captured really the best of the best that um, that people could really enjoy over the next uh, few weeks. I hope so. It's at least a representative sampling. You know, it's not a definitive encyclopedia, but uh, I've already been receiving a lot of uh, good feedback and fan mail and people asking um, what's going to be in the next book. And um, unlike the Universal documentaries, uh, that might actually happen. Yeah. If if, if you went out and buy enough copies this time around. Well, there's two more. Uh, But I had a great time writing it, and I'd love to do it again. Well, there's a couple more movies I want to feature. Scream almost felt like the return of, you know, people, you know, you get tired of the Friday the 13th and the Halloweens. You want something fresh, the Nightmares on Elm Street and all those sequels. And it just felt good that there was something contemporary with some younger stars that were more familiar. It wasn't just another sequel to an old franchise. Yeah, and it's also a a meta. It's it's a kind of a meta film. It's uh, you're supposed to know all about the genre. And the genre is invoked in many ironic and clever ways um, throughout it. So it, it truly is a it's a horror movie for horror movie fans, and uh, became a you know, franchise of its own. 
Young Frankenstein is one that you call out. So you do talk a little bit about the comedy aspect of this because, you know, we obviously talked about Abbott and Costello meets Frankenstein and how much comedy and horror do kind of go together, especially in the emotions of being so scared. You're almost laughing when you're walking out of a film, out of relief that it's over. But Young Frankenstein is in a class all by itself. It was, uh, it's it, like like Abbott and Costello made Frankenstein. It's uh, on many people's uh, all-time favorite lists. And I think it, it's because it is such a loving homage. It's hysterically funny. But the detail with which Brooks and his uh, crew recreated the look and feel of those uh, old Frankenstein movies is just extraordinary. They actually uh, got some of the original laboratory equipment from the 1931 Karloff film that was, and were able to make it work, you know, uh, one last time on the screen. And um, it, uh, I, I think it's it's the affection with which the films are uh, held by Brooke that really makes it work. It's easy to to you know be snarky and make fun of horror movies, uh, but he did it in an absolutely uh, perfect way. Well, nowhere near the same level uh, was Beetlejuice, and it has its own cult following uh, so many years later, but that was another one that it was comedy and, and horror at its best. And some of the horror stuff, some of the things that were happening there were pretty, they were wildly disgusting. Oh, yeah, uh, around the same time. And actually, some of the effects in uh, Beetlejuice um are, are kind of funny send-ups on the kind of explicit gore that you uh, would see in other films. The the uh, now that period of time, you know, the uh, the Motion Picture Code had gone by the wayside. This book is massive and so in depth. What uh, if you had a call out one that you said, yeah, really, that's that's my personal favorite. That's at the top. What would it be, David? Oh, everybody's doing this. Uh, <laughs> I get that. I get asked this question several times a day, at least this month. It, um, I have to say that you know uh, the Lugosi Dracula is my mm. personal favorite, even though it is not the greatest uh, uh, film from an artistic standpoint. But it was groundbreaking. It made everything else happen in talking pictures because it was the first time Hollywood took a chance on a completely supernatural premise. And uh, the studios were all interested in Dracula because, you know, it was successful as a book and a stage play. Mm -hmm. But uh, in the movies, if there was anything scary, especially in the silent era uh, or uh, hideous character, it was always explained away as having a rational explanation. You know, usually Mm -hmm. some kind of criminal enterprise plot to steal an inheritance, something like that. And here, uh, for the first time, uh, this was the real deal. This, this was a this is a 500 year old you know blood sucking demon from hell, and <laughs> they held their breath um, yeah. doing it because uh, they they were nervous. All the studios were nervous, and Universal bought the rights to prevent MGM, a rival studio, from getting them, and then had to make it. And they didn't have uh, Lon Chaney, who they wanted to. Uh, anchor the film, and he was a very bankable star. He died of cancer uh, just as the film's planning was getting underway. And lo and behold, at the worst year of the Great Depression, Dracula became this, like, lightning rod for all of the anxieties 
the, the real fear and terror that was in the air. There were no social safety nets in those days. People did feel, you know, that this might be the end of the world. Um, wow. Interesting. In right. the, yeah, the, de- the depression, we think of the yeah. depression in terms of, you know, the old sepia tone photos and, mm-hmm. and picturesque images uh, of bread lines. But it was uh, on a gut level, it was something really uh, tumultuous. And uh, I don't think if Dracula and Frankenstein and Jekyll and Hyde weren't, didn't take root in the cinema in that year the way they did, they would be as much of a part of popular culture as they are as they are today. Interesting. Interesting. Dracula kicked it all off. With reviews, behind-the-scenes stories, iconic images, spotlighting 31 essential Halloween time films or associated sequels and remakes, the book is called Fright Favorites, available wherever books are sold. David, fascinating. Uh, a pleasure talking to you again. I, I said I discovered you 20 years ago in that Universal documentary. Uh, thrilled that you came out with this book, and it's you know perfect for the season. Okay, I'm glad, so glad you enjoyed it, and uh, have a safe and uh, healthy and happy Halloween. Thanks, you too, David.